And once again, good morning. Good to see everybody. If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you this morning. Just to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And this morning we find ourselves in chapter 15. If you'd open there, John 15, most of you obviously know this very well. And we'll be studying this over the next few weeks. But let's just begin looking at three verses to introduce this series. And I'm going to have you first of all look at John 15, verse 1 where Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Here in John 15, we have one of the classic passages in the New Testament on the purpose and importance of fruit-bearing in the Christian life. In this section, guys, John uses one, excuse me, Jesus uses one of his many illustrations taken from something they all knew very well, agriculture. They lived in an agrarian society. But in particular, the cultivation and care of grapevines to communicate one of the most important lessons he ever taught on the, on the essential relationship between himself and his disciples. And, you know, since the whole goal of agriculture is to bear fruit, something the disciples understood only too well, he uses this illustration to drive home the importance of fruit bearing in our relationship with him because the rest of the New Testament emphasizes how that the whole goal of the Christian life is to bear fruit. That's what it is. It's what it's all about. Uh, in fact, fruit bearing is such an important part of the Christian life that Jesus goes as far as to say that the only way we even know that we are one of his disciples, in other words, that we uh, even know that we are saved, is that we bear fruit. When Jesus said, I am the vine, in verses 1 and then verse 5, that phrase, spoken just hours before his death, was the last of the seven I am statements in John's Gospel. As we have been pointing out, John's Gospel is highly organized. He built it around seven I am statements. Each of these I am statements is a declaration of divinity, since they each begin with Jesus declaring himself to be the great I am in human form which, by the way, is the theme of John's entire gospel, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. I have written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So John's whole purpose is to present Jesus, God in human form, who died for our sins that we might be saved. And as such, the phrase, I am, used in John's gospel, is the name of God. Now, the name of God was first expressed, and we talked about this a little last week, so if you were here, bear with me, uh, for the sake of the new folks especially, but the phrase, I am, is the name of God. And we first learned that from Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. What happened? Well, God told Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go free. Moses said to the Lord, well, Lord, who shall I tell Pharaoh is sending me? I don't even know your name. 
And that's when God says, my name is I am. Tell Pharaoh I am is sending you. Now that's a very interesting name. As we pointed out last week, it's a verb. It's a verb in the Hebrew, and it means to be or to become. The idea being that God wants to be or to become to us whatever we need, which is why the word Jehovah, Yahweh, I am in the Hebrew is often coupled with a noun. I'll give you several examples. Jehovah Shalom, I am peace. Or in other words, I want to become your peace. Jehovah Jireh, I am provision. I want to become the provider for whatever you need. Jehovah Nissi, I am victory. I want to become your victory in every area of your life. Jehovah Rohi, I am shepherd. I'm the good shepherd who wants to lead your life in the right paths. But the greatest of all of these guys is Jehovah Shua, which means I am salvation, or I want to become salvation to you. The Greek name Jesus comes from Jehovah Shua, or Yehoshua, or the contracted form Yeshua. Yeshua is the same name as Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form Yeshua is the Hebrew form. But either way, God wants to become to us whatever we need. Well, what was our greatest need? <laughs> our need for salvation. So therefore, God, the second person of the Trinity, came down from heaven, became a man, died in our place in the person of Jesus Christ, our Yeshua. The Lord has become our salvation. Now, that's if you want him. I was telling first service you don't have to receive Jesus as your Savior. He is offering to save you. God so loved the entire world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever puts their faith in Christ would not perish in hell but have everlasting life. But you don't have to go to heaven. I mean, I've, I've told people in the past, look, if you want to go to hell, you can certainly get there. It's hard. It's not easy. As Spurgeon said, you gotta, you got to step over the broken, battered body of Jesus Christ that, who died to keep you from going to hell. But if you want to get there, you try hard enough, you'll get there. But Jesus doesn't want that. God lamented to Israel, uh, turn from your sins. Why will you die? I get no pleasure out of sending anyone to hell. Come to me. I'm a merciful, forgiving God. I want to save you from your sins. There's a lot of hard-hearted people out there, folks. They are bound and determined to go to hell. They will not bow the knee to Christ in this life. Unfortunately, what they don't realize, they will bow the knee to him someday. If not in this life for salvation, in the next life for damnation. But Jesus died for us. He became our Yeshua. The Lord has become our salvation. And John's Gospel... Jesus called himself, I am, again, the name of God, coupled with seven different nouns expressing what he desires to become to people, starting, of course, with his name, as we just said. He wants to become their savior. Let me read these to you. Uh, these are the seven I am statements that John built his gospel around. Now, they appear like this. The first one, John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. 
but let's look at it as a name followed by a description. So I'm going to put a, a hyphen in there. Bear with me. John 6.35, I am the bread of life. I want to become to you your spiritual sustenance. John 8.12, I am the light of the world. If you walk in my light, you'll never stumble in darkness. I am, John 10.9, the door. If you enter by me, you'll find eternal pasture. You'll find paradise. John 10.11, I am, again, the name of God, I am the good shepherd. Many shepherds out there who will lead you in all kinds of wrong paths for your life. If you follow me, I am the good shepherd. The Greek is good through and through. The truly good shepherd who will truly lead you in the right paths for your life. John eleven twenty five. 25, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe on me, though you may die, you will live again. And if you live and believe in me, you'll never die. Number six, John 14, verse six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father. Nobody gets to heaven except through me. And now the seventh I am statement, John 15, verses 1 and 5. I am the vine. Each of these statements is a declaration of divinity affirming that Jesus himself is the great I am in human form. Well, that's how John began his gospel. He began his gospel by telling us that very truth. Turn to John chapter 1. We touched on this last week, so just bear with me for another minute or so as we review. But each of these statements, I am, I am, the great I am, Yahweh, are all declarations of divinity affirming that Jesus Christ is the great I am in human form. A truth that John began his gospel with, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. We know that's a title for Jesus Christ. If you doubt that, read Revelation 19. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus Christ. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus Christ, the great I Am, second person of the Trinity, at one point was placed in the womb of Mary, the seed of God. Mary eventually bore Jesus onto the earth, the God-man who came to die for our sins. Now listen, before we look at Jesus' illustration of the vine and the branches, we need to set the scene a little bit. See, here's the problem, with, and I was telling first services, Here's the problem with many Christians today. They don't want to put in the effort to really find out the context of what they're reading. They're in a hurry. You know, they got a few minutes to want to get a few verses in before they run off to work. And so they open the Bible, you know, and they start reading and they don't, they don't know the context. They don't know the historical background. They're, they just dive in, and whatever they read, they kind of pull out and apply to themselves, and they come away with a lot of misinterpretations 
and a lot of very wrong applications. And that's why it's so important that we, and guys, this will be, a, it's always true when you read the Word of God. Context is everything. But especially when you read John 15, as you'll see in a moment. If you want to get the proper interpretation out of John 15, we have to set the scene a little bit and then sketch out the background, the context. So bear with me, all right? The evening began in John 13. Now, we have studied that. We know that, right? It began in an upper room somewhere in Jerusalem where Jesus and his 12 apostles slash disciples were observing the Passover together. During the Passover meal, at one point, Judas Iscariot left the room to carry out his betrayal of Christ. After Judas left the room, Jesus instituted communion and then began to give his disciples one final teaching before his crucifixion to comfort and prepare them for what was coming the next day. Now, at the end of chapter 14, Jesus said to the 11 remaining disciples, Arise, let us go from here. At that point, Jesus and his disciples left the upper room and began making their way through the streets of Jerusalem toward the eastern gate. Now, the eastern gate, also known as the Golden Gate, was the gate through which they needed to exit the city to make their way to the Mount of Olives. They were going to the Mount of Olives because there was a particular garden on that mount, the Garden of Gethsemane, and that was the destination where Jesus was headed, the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus knew the owner of that garden so well that the owner had in fact given Jesus a key to the gate of the garden that Jesus could come and go anytime as he pleased. And he did use that garden all the time, especially when he was in Jerusalem and after a hard day of ministry, he would retreat to the garden of Gethsemane, let himself in, and he would there pray to his father after all, again, a long day of ministry, sometimes praying all night to his father. Now this night would once again find him spending time in prayer in that very garden. The only difference being that this would be the last night he would spend time in that garden praying. You see, on this night, after spending several hours praying to his father, he would be arrested and then taken to the home of Annas, who was the official Jewish high priest. There at Annas's house, he would undergo the first of two mock trials. The first being religious, a religious trial, as he would stand before the high priest and members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, and he would be accused and convicted of blasphemy. But then they had to take him to Pilate. The Jews didn't have the authority to execute anyone. Now, blasphemy under Jewish law was punishable by death, but they didn't have the authority to kill anybody. So they had to take him to Pilate, but they realized Rome didn't care about Jewish law. They didn't care that Jesus had blasphemed the God of Israel, although he never did. He's the God of Israel, right? But that's the charge they were going for. They convicted him on that charge, but they knew Pilate would never go for that. Pilate was the Roman governor of the region at that time. So they had to trump up another charge. So they came up with, he's an insurrectionist because he tells people to worship another God besides Caesar. So they brought him to Pilate's court. They got there. I think his court opened at 6, 5 or 6. I think it was 6. And they were waiting there about when the time Pilate got there with his Starbucks in his hand because they wanted to be the first on the docket that day and want to get this thing going. 
and we'll study that in detail. But both of these mock trials took no longer than six hours because then at 9 o'clock in the morning, by that time, Jesus was now on the cross. He was on the cross starting at 9 in the morning. Now, with all that as background, guys, John 15 is a continuation of the discourse Jesus began in the upper room as recorded in chapters 13 and 14. We've studied this. As I said, they were now on the move en route from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, it being Passover time, they would have been traveling under the light of a full moon. You see, Passover by Jewish law was always held at the time of the full moon. Always. And the path they would have to take would take them through the temple precincts, a rather large area, I think 35 acres. Uh, that was the way they had to go, though as they first of all left the upper room, were making their way through the streets of Jerusalem, we know they had to at one point enter the temple precincts, and then as they were exiting the temple precinct, and in fact the city, there was the eastern or the golden gate, and they had to exit the city through that gate, because once again, uh, across the Kidron Valley, from that gate was the Mount of Olives, and on that mount was this particular garden where Jesus was headed, the Garden of Gethsemane. Very important that we understand that. Now, the gates of the city were always left open at night during the Passover time. Always. And this was to accommodate pilgrims who were coming from all over the known world for this very important yeah, day. But then right after the 14th of Nisan, which was Passover, uh, another feast started called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That ran for seven consecutive days from the 15th to the 21st. They almost always lumped the whole thing together and called it Passover. Called it Passover. But it was a two-day, it was a two-feast uh, time, Passover being one day, Feast of Unleavened Bread being a week, okay? But to accommodate pilgrims who might finally get to Jerusalem at three in the morning, they left the city gates open and understand this was the most cherished, revered, honored feast of the entire Jewish year so during Passover time, people were coming and going all night long, praying and, and worshiping and things all night. So they, as a courtesy to these pilgrims who were in town for this feast, they left the city gates open uh, during Passover time, day and night. Something you need to know, though, all right, is the disciples were moving towards the eastern gate, also again called the golden gate. You have to understand something. This is all background. Those gates were somewhat of a tourist attraction. So what do you mean? Well, they were special gates. They were forged in Greece, and then they were sailed across the Aegean Sea and eventually brought to Jerusalem and placed in Herod's remodeled temple. All right? Remember, he took 40-some years remodeling the temple, right? Making it beautiful. That's why it's often called Herod's Temple. And that was ap apropos because it was really no longer God's temple. Uh, he had departed uh, in Ezekiel 10. Okay, you can read Ezekiel 10. All right, he, he was long gone, all right, by this time. So call it whatever you want. It wasn't the Lord's temple anymore. It wasn't his house. It was, uh, it was Herod's temple, right, and so on. But the gates that I'm talking about, the, the golden gates, were made of bronze, but they looked like gold in the sun. That's why they were often referred to as the Golden Gates. 
the important thing for you to understand, which is germane to this whole teaching that Jesus is about to give, is that carved into these golden gates was a rather large, very ornate vine and grape carvings. A very ornate grapevine carved into these golden gates, a vine which represented the nation of Israel. It is possible, and folks, I think probable, that upon seeing those gates and the vine carvings uh, that were in them, on the, on the uh, two gates, that Jesus could have stopped. Now they're moving towards these gates as they get there. The gates are open. And I think it's probable that in the light of the moon, again, Passover being at the time of the full moon, Jesus could have stopped, pointed to these beautiful, ornate carvings of the vine, branches, grapes, and he could have used the occasion to teach his disciples this very incredible spiritual lesson using the vine and branches to communicate something that I think a lot of Christians don't understand how profound it is. Very profound. But I want you to understand something. Up until this point, the illustration of a fruitful vine was how God had wanted to portray the nation of Israel from the very beginning. I'll just read you these scriptures. You can write them down. First of all, Psalm 80, verses 8 and 9. How the psalmist said, You brought us from Egypt like a grapevine. You drove away the pagan nations and transplanted us into your land. You cleared the ground for us. In other words, they, God drove out the pagans, the Canaanites. And we took root and filled the land. That was God's design, that they were to replace the pagans and become a nation under God. Oh, does that sound familiar? Wow, where do we get that from? They were to become a nation under God. A nation that honored God. A nation that lived for God. Represented God. And bore the fruit of righteousness as God had intended. Well, that was God's intentions. It didn't work out that way. Isaiah 5 verse 7 says, The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of hosts. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. God did everything in his power to give Israel the best start as a nation any nation could ever have. Taken from Egypt, brought under the guidance of God to the promised land, driven out the Canaanites, and he then planted this choice, as he called it, a choice vine to bring forth the fruit of righteousness because God said, I want to use you as an object lesson to the whole world. That if any nation like you will honor me, obey me, and make me their God, I will bless them like I'm going to bless you. You are going to be a light in the darkness. You are going to be a light to the Gentiles. This is all Old Testament stuff. But Israel failed to bear the fruit of righteousness. So God now has turned that responsibility, listen, over to his church, which is why Jesus said to his disciples, and again, this is all background, Israel failed 
in the, in the ministry God had called them to. Now, God isn't done with Israel. We, we've talked about that, all right? After the rapture, he will turn his face again toward Israel and use them as an instrument in the tribulation period to bring many to Christ. So he's not done. They've been set aside, but not forsaken for good. But at this point, the Lord was about now to transition, again, old covenant to the new covenant. And now God was going to use the church to bear the fruit of righteousness, to be a light to the world. Jesus is saying, if with that in mind, I am the true vine, and I'm paraphrasing, now you, my disciples, my church, are the branches. And it is the Father's will, it has always been the Father's will, that the branches connected to God bring forth fruit. You are those branches. Now before we can glean, guys, everything, Jesus wanted to communicate to us from this illustration. We first need to understand exactly what he is saying here, since, listen, this is a very controversial section of Scripture. I don't know if you realize that. John 15, 1-8 especially, is a very, it's not a controversial to me, but there's a lot of folks who read this, and they come away with different interpretations. Again, context, context, context. What is the context? And if you don't fully familiarize yourself with the context of a passage, you are not going to get the correct interpretation, and you won't have the proper application. Many believe, I'm not one of them, many believe that Jesus is teaching here, listen, that Christians can lose their salvation if they don't live righteously, or in other words, if they don't bear fruit, they're going to lose their salvation. Or if they backslide and stop producing good fruit, they will be pruned by the Father, or in other words, separated from Christ and cast into hell. But guys, in the light of all that Jesus has taught up until this point in John's Gospel, concerning the absolute eternal security of the believer in Christ, listen, I thoroughly reject that interpretation. i give you just a few examples. Turn to John 6. And we've already studied these. I'm just going to touch on them. John 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, listen, I will by no means cast out. Now people read that and go, yeah, well, that means it, anyone who comes to Jesus for salvation, he'll accept that. But that doesn't mean they can't be cast out later. Oh, really? Okay, well, keep reading verse 39. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, listen, I should lose 10%. That wouldn't be bad. 10% is good. If you only lost 10%, I should lose nothing. No one. But should raise it up at the last day. How about John 10? Quickly, turn to John 10. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, I 
know them. The Greek word for know is a very intimate knowledge, like when a man knows his wife and there's a baby involved then, okay? It's a very deep, it's a deep relationship, a oneness. It speaks of salvation is where I'm going with that. My sheep, those that belong to me, we know each other. We are one with each other. Listen. And they follow me. That's how you know you're one of Jesus' sheep. Are you following him? And I give them, what? Eternal life, right? Did he go on to say, I give them eternal life unless they blow it, then I revoke it? No. First of all, if God gives you eternal life, how long is that for? Well, by definition, it's life for eternity, right? It couldn't be eternal life if you could lose it. The best he could say was, I'll give you, I'll give you life, and we'll see how you do. And, you know, someday I'll evaluate you, and if you didn't do good enough, you're out. And those that did do good enough come into heaven. That's not what he said. We know that, right? But I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. They'll never go to hell. Anyone that has eternal life is never going to perish in hell. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. So, you know, I reject the, interpret reject the interpretation that says, you know, we can lose our salvation if we don't bear fruit. Don't measure up, right? Now, it's very important, uh, I think especially here, that we try to put ourselves in Jesus' sandals. Because <laughs> I don't think he wore Nike. So, got to put ourselves in Jesus' sandals the night before his crucifixion and try to understand what was weighing most heavily on his heart and mind as he was just hours from the cross. Because listen, guys, none of his teachings were devoid of context. And that's what I'm getting at. If we don't try to understand the context, and I'm talking about now what was on Jesus' heart, what was on his mind, that he's just hours from the cross, right? What was on his heart that night that would have precipitated this incredible teaching it had a context nothing jesus taught was devoid of context well first of all we know the father was on his heart and mind that night how do we know that because he talked a lot in chapters 13 and 14 about how he was ready to go back to his father he's looking forward to going back to his father if you love me you would be happy i'm going back to my father remember we talked about all of this right so we know the father was on the lord's mind that night and going back to his father we also know that the 11 disciples were weighing heavy on his heart and mind that night. How do we know that? Because he spent the better part of the 14th chapter trying to comfort them. We know he was deeply concerned about them. But also there was somebody on his heart that we may not realize. He was thinking about Judas on that night. Now we know this because earlier in the evening in the upper room... As he washed the disciples' feet, he said in John 13, starting with verse 10, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Now, if you look at the context, he's talking about being clean in salvation, right? Being completely cleansed of sin through him, salvation. He said... You're all, you're all clean, but not all of you. Verse 11, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. You're not all saved. Think of clean as a synonym for saved. All right? Eleven of the disciples he knew were saved. One, he knew, he knew Judas 
was not saved. He knew Judas was not saved. Very important that we understand that. Because as he was thinking about Judas, see, here's the thing. Let me let me just summarize. Let me just say this, because I got ahead of myself, all right? Um, the thought that one of those disciples who had appeared to be connected to him for the last three and a half years, in other words, saved, was only, listen, superficially attached to him or connected to him, or in other words, wasn't saved, was deeply and definitely on his mind that night. So let me summarize. Therefore, on that night now, this is all the context of John 15. Therefore, on that night, Jesus was thinking about the Father, whom he loved and who loved him in return, whom he would soon be returning back to. He was also thinking about the 11 disciples who he loved and who loved him back, those who were genuine and truly connected to him by saving faith. But he was also thinking about Judas, whom he loved, but who didn't love him in return. Judas, who was a phony disciple, a deceiver, and was not really connected to him by saving faith. Now, guys, I believe that forms the background for this all-important teaching in John 15. I believe that all of this was on the mind of Jesus that night. As he led his disciples through the streets of Jerusalem, then through the temple area, on their way to the Mount of Olives, and as he came to the Golden Gate, the gates that led out of the city, and seeing the grapevine carvings on those gates in the light of the moon, that this became the impetus, the impetus for giving them this discourse using the illustration of the vine and the branches. And therefore, it shouldn't surprise us then that this illustration would contain references to all the people that were on Jesus' heart and mind that night, all the people that had a relationship with him, which he, which he then weaves into this illustration of the vine and the branches. So here it is. Jesus Christ, well, he is the true vine. That's easy. He said it in verse 1. Then you have the Father, who is the vine dresser, verse 1 at the end. Then you have the 11 true disciples. They are the branches that bear fruit, or what some have called Jesus' branches. In other words, they were truly saved. And then you had Judas, and all who are like him, who are refer he referred to as the branches that don't bear fruit, or what some have called Judas' branches. In other words, phony or counterfeit disciples. People who look genuine, but are only superficially attached to Christ, verses 2 and 6 tell us that so first of all and we're just kind of laying the groundwork for this series first of all we have jesus christ as the true vine the true vine verse one now as we've already pointed out in the old testament israel had been referred to by god as a vine planted tended and pruned by almighty god but israel had become unproductive in producing the fruits of righteousness. I'll read you two more. These are all throughout the Old Testament. You can write these down. Hosea chapter 10, verse 1. Israel is a lush vine. It yields fruit for itself, not for God, for itself. The more his fruit increased, the more he increased the altars. 
to pagan gods. The better his land produced, the better they made the, the better they made the sacred pillars to idols. In other words, what God is saying is, the more I blessed and prospered them, the more they turned against me. Now, whenever a person prays to God, give me today my daily bread, and really means it, they really need God to provide, that's a person that's going to remain close to God. You're dependent on Him. You really need Him. So you stay close to Him. But whenever a person or a people prosper to the point where they don't, don't really need God, hey, we got it wired, you know? We know how to grow our own food. We don't need God to give us bread. Not realizing that God gives the sunshine, the rain, everything else to grow the bread, right? But man, it gets cocky. But when, when man prospers, uh, and God knew this, but whenever man prospers, prosperity leads to apathy, which leads to apostasy, which ends up in idolatry. And God warned his people of this very thing in Deuteronomy chapter 8 when he said before he ever led them into the promised land. I'll paraphrase. He said, look, I'm about to lead you into the good land, I promise you, but I want to give you a warning. When you enter this good land flowing with milk and honey, and you begin to live in those houses you didn't build, drinking from those wells you didn't dig, and eating from the vineyards you didn't plant, don't forget about me. Because prosperity will have a way of taking your heart from me. I want to bless you. But that can lead to some negative consequences. God knew it. And so he charged Israel not to let their prosperity turn their hearts away from God. They didn't listen. They didn't listen. And so here we see God lamenting through the prophets. How that I, I, I planted you as a nation in a good land. I gave you the best start any nation has ever had. But the more I blessed you, the less you loved me. The more I prospered you, the more you turned to idols to worship them. America, take note. Jeremiah 2.21, God lamented. Yet I had planted you, in, uh, planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality, how then have you turned be against me uh, into this degenerate plant of an alien vine? You know, Jesus himself had indicted the nation for this very thing in the parable he gave in Matthew 21, verses 20, excuse me, in Matthew 21, verses 33 to 43. You can check that out on your own, but let me just tell you, paraphrase what he said here. In that parable... He indicted the Jewish people for not bearing the fruits of righteousness. But instead, no matter how many prophets God sent them to tell them, please repent, come back to me, because the nation had turned away from God. The people not only would not listen, they killed the prophets. Everyone that God sent to them, they butchered, right? And, and Jesus is lamenting this. And he said, and now you're about ready to kill the final messenger that God is, has sent you to tell you to repent. Look, God doesn't want to bring judgment. He doesn't want to bring judgment on Israel. He don't want, doesn't want to bring judgment on America. He doesn't want to bring judgment on your lives individually. He wants to show mercy. That's what God's all about. And through the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 18, God said Lord, to Israel through the prophet, uh, turn 
to me. Please turn. Why, why will you die in your sins and go to hell? I get no pleasure out of seeing anyone die in their sins and go to hell. I don't want to send anyone to hell. I want to show you mercy. I want to bless you again, but you have to turn to me. But of course, Israel didn't do that. And Jesus says, and now the, the final messenger God has sent you to turn from your sins and get right with him, his own dear son you're about ready to murder, was the idea. Now guys, with the Old Testament order, economy, whatever you want to call it, ending, and the New Covenant having just begun, having just been installed or inaugurated at the Last Supper communion, remember we studied that, uh, Jesus states clearly that he is the true vine. He is the true vine. By saying this, Jesus Christ is likening the whole human race to branches. The branches and himself to the only true vine, and is saying to people everywhere, I alone am the source of life, nourishment, fruitfulness, and fulfillment. So many in our culture today have attached themselves to vines, quote-unquote, other than Christ as a source of life and fulfillment. Vines like money, education, sex, fame, political power, social connections, business success, and a variety of, of religious affiliations are just some of the many vines that we see in our culture that people have attached themselves to looking for happiness and fulfillment. But only Jesus is the true vine. Only Jesus is the source of eternal life. And all that goes along with it. Joy unspeakable, full of glory, and so on. This life flows, and listen to me, it only flows from Jesus. John 1 verse 4, in him is life, and only in him is the idea. In him is life. The life is the light of men. What does that mean? The word of God, truth, which if you receive into your heart the gospel, you will be born again, and you'll walk in God's light. You'll walk in his truth. You'll live with him for eternity is the idea. But this life only flows from Jesus because he is the vine. When you attach yourself to Christ, that life flows from Christ into your life and then through your life in the form of fruit. But only if you're really attached to him. Well, we second look at the Father in verse 1. Jesus is the Father, is the vine dresser. Now, Jesus likened the Father to the vine dresser. In the first, they all knew this stuff, by the way. The first century, a vine dresser would have two, two duties. Uh, there were other things, but these were the two main ones, okay? First, he would cut off the branches that weren't bearing fruit, branches that were sapping energy so as to allow more life to flow into the branches that were bearing fruit so that they could produce more and larger fruit. So you get it in your mind's eye, right? You got a vine, and from the vine are branches. Some of the branches are bearing fruit, some are not. What do you want the branches that don't bear fruit hanging in there for? Cut them off. It, 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 uh, it uh, focuses uh, the life of the vine into the branches that are bearing fruit. That's good, right? But also, the vine dresser would prune the branches that did bear fruit, cutting off what they called the little sucker shoots. 
Think of a, a vine with branches. The branches are bearing fruit. All, uh, along those branches, there are little things that stick up. Little, you know, maybe an inch or so, just little, they call them sucker shoots, offshoots from the vine that were never going to grow into anything. But they were sapping energy away from the fruit that was being born in that branch. Cut it off. Cut it off. That way you were focusing, again, the growing energy uh, into the areas of the branch that were already bearing fruit. The goal being that those branches bore fruit, more fruit, and ultimately much fruit. That was the whole idea. And uh, get rid of the little sucker shoots that were sapping energy away from the branches that were bearing fruit. Uh, there's a lot of applications to our lives. We'll talk about that more next time. Uh, ouch. There are some applications that really, again, one of the greatest teachings in the New Testament on bearing fruit, which is the goal of the Christian life, right? But again, this was done cutting away these little sucker shoots so that the branches would bring forth the most fruit possible. Uh, Jesus said that's what the Father desires from our lives as well. He said that in verses 2 and verse 8, that we bear fruit, more fruit, and ultimately much fruit. Well, how about the Judas branches? Judas branches, verse 2, first of all. Jesus said, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, we'll talk about that more as we go, but we've already mentioned it, right? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, that last, this verse 6, has sent a lot of people to the medicine cabinet for a volume or the liquor closet for a shot of something. Because they know they're not living very fruitful lives. They know that their Christian life is not all that it should be. So they read this and they go, that's me. I'm not bearing fruit like I should. He's going to cut me off, throw me into hell. I'm going to be punished forever. Look, let's stop and consider, and we'll close because we're done. I just want to set this up for next week, okay? Let's stop and consider the words of Jesus carefully when he said, every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away don't let the phrase in me throw you or bother you now i realize we've talked about this the phrase in christ right and how that in the new testament that is a term that means somebody who is saved who is in christ and all the benefits that come as a result of being in christ the whole theme of the book of ephesians is in christ right but the book of ephesians is a very doctrinal book Whenever you come to a parable or an illustration, you can't get that dogmatic. Christians get in trouble when they take a parable or an illustration and, and press it to the nth degree. Now they're trying to fit every little doctrine and, and they, get, they get off base. Parables are not designed to teach doctrine in the sense of being uh, very strict in this, what they're teaching. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like, not exactly like, is like. When you try to make it exactly like something, you get into trouble, okay? Don't let the phrase in me bother you. I don't believe Jesus is speaking literally here of people who are genuinely saved, but in a figurative sense. Or in other words, I believe that what the Lord is really saying, and let me paraphrase what I believe he's saying. I believe what the Lord Jesus is really saying is that certain branches, quote-unquote, appear, appear 
to be in me. Just like Judas appeared to be in me for three and a half years, right? And I'm, I don't know if I brought this out. I, I know I brought it for first service. Sometimes I repeat myself. Um, all the other disciples believed Judas was real, right? Now, Jesus knew he wasn't. He said several times, he's a son of perdition. That means he's a son of hell. Uh, he's not clean. He's unsaved, right? But the other disciples never doubted Judas being real. I mean, when Jesus said this night in the upper room, uh, one of you is going to betray me, uh, one of you is a deceiver, is going to betray me, they didn't all look at Judas, the guy in the black leather robe, you know. I know it was him. You know, they were completely taken off guard. One of us is going to be, who's, is it me? Is it, they begin to, is it me, Lord? Is it me? You know, the whole room began to buzz. Judas, you know, was not saved, but he looked like he was one of the disciples. That's the point. He looked like he was in Jesus, connected to Jesus, right? And he did bear some fruit, didn't he? When Jesus sent out the 11, Judas was with them, so the 12, to preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons. Uh, Judas did all of that. It's interesting, you can be used by God and not be a Christian. You say, that what? Yeah, sure. Caiaphas prophesied he wasn't a believer. A donkey spoke and preached in the Old Testament. You think the donkey was saved? Well, maybe. I, I might fit into that category. But God can use the most unlikely people and things to do his work through. I believe the Lord was saying, guys, there are you're all branches. But 11 of you are really connected to me. One of you only appears to be connected to me. Judas appeared to be in me. Genuine. Guys, all the superficial Judas branches are someday going to be dealt with by God. In other words, Judge, verse 6, is telling us that if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. He is not, not talking about Christians who backslide and maybe stop bearing a lot of fruit, right? He's not talking about them. He's talking about superficial Judas branches, folks that go to church, that uh, claim the name of Christ, carry a Bible around with them, uh, but they're not real. They're not genuine. They may think they are, but they're not really connected to Christ through saving faith where the life of God is flowing through them into them bearing the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, compare that with what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Turn to Matthew 7. I mean, this, this is exactly what we're talking about. In Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Now I knew you for a while, and you stopped bearing fruit, so I had you cut off and thrown into the fire. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. We've talked about this many, many times. 
These are not atheists or agnostics. They say, Lord, Lord. The double is for emphasis. They're emphatic. These are not atheists, agnostics. These are committed churchgoers. They're involved in ministry. They call him Lord. They're orthodox in their faith. They think they're real. They're, they're astonished and terrified on the day of judgment when he says, I never knew you. What do you mean you, never, you don't know us? We were in church every week. We prayed the rosary. We lit the candles. We worked in the soup kitchen. We did all these things. Yeah, you did. That was religion. You, didn't have a, you had religion, but you didn't have a relationship with me. And how do, how do we know that? Because they went out from church on Sunday. All week long they lived contrary to God's laws, His word. So Jesus is telling us in this passage, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, goes to church and is involved in ministry, really knows me. There are superficial Judas branches all throughout the church of Jesus Christ. They appear to be in Christ, connected to Him. They're not. Now, I was going to have you read this with me, but I'll, I'll just throw it out. Matthew 12, uh, 13, verses 24 to 30, we're out of time. But here Jesus talks about the terrors among the wheat. Terrors are weeds, darnell. And Jesus said there was a man who sowed good seed in his fields. And while he slept, an enemy came and sowed the terrors. Terrors look just like wheat for a while. Until the wheat grows to the point where it starts to bear the kernel, the fruit. Weeds don't bear fruit. That's when you know they're tares. But the servants in the parable said, Master, I mean, you planted good seed. Where do these tares come from? Well, an enemy has done this. The enemy was Satan, obviously. And um, what do you want us to rip out the tares? No, lest you rip out some of the wheat. Let them both grow together until the judgment, and then my, my angels will take the tares bind them in bundles cast them into the fire and my wheat will be taken and brought into my kingdom my barns there are tares in the church of jesus christ may i call them judas branches some of them they think they're saved many of them are playing games they just want to come to church to network i've seen that before uh, they have some product they want to sell or they have a service. They're a doctor or a dentist or something. They come. I don't know if our doctors and dentists are doing this. I'm just saying, I've had them in the past. They've left because our church wasn't big enough to, to network in. God bless them. They're wonderful people. But, you know, I, and, and a lot of the, them are actually saved. But there are people that come to church for a lot of reasons, different reasons. And it's not up to us to say, oh, oh, yeah, they're, they're genuine. Oh, this, I, think, I think she's a terror. Uh, you know, it's not up to, we don't know the heart. So knock that off. Don't do that. And by the way, it's not always wrong the tares come. Sometimes they're churchgoers who all their lives have been taught like I was a Roman Catholic. I was a terror at one point. My goodness, I just thought about that. I was a terror. <laughs> when I went to Calvary Costa Mesa and heard the gospel for the first time, I was a terror. I thought I was saved. But the teaching of the word convinced me, no, 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 I didn't know the Lord. I had, a, I had religion, but not a relationship. And that's when I received prayer. You can, you can be a tear one day and a, and, a, and a wheat, and wheat the next day you receive Christ. But there's a lot of folks who will never get saved. They're Judases. And uh, they're phonies. They're deceivers. 
but pray for them that they would leave, that they wouldn't stay. We don't know who they are. But if they're not going to get saved, God, take them out of here. I don't want them hurting the other folks who are genuinely saved, right? Well, that, guys, brings us then to the heart of this passage, the Jesus branches. Jesus is the true vine. The Father is the vine dresser. Then you have the Judas branches that are in view here. And then finally, the heart of the passage is what we have called the Jesus branches. Just read verse 2. At the end, every branch in me that does not that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That's the beginning of verse 2. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. We will look at this next time, God willing, and we will see how the Father prunes the Jesus branches. True Christians. Because the goal is fruit-bearing, right? And the Father wants to prune our... What does that mean, though? Well, we'll have to look at that next time. But the Father wants to prune from our lives everything that is sucking energy and life away from Jesus and fruit-bearing to other things. And uh, very important that we understand that. We'll define what the fruit is that the Father is looking for from our lives as we continue with our series the vine and the branches so father we thank you for your word lord and thank you that is if we will seek you the spirit will lead us into all truth and we just thank you lord as we study this passage that i believe the context really helps us to understand what you're saying here and uh, that we would then go forward and examine ourselves to see if we are really Jesus branches or Judas branches. Give us grace, Lord, that we would do that. And we thank you for your grace. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.